Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out um, to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel would um, come up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Chedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had, um, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth, Hagoyim, up to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army um, all the way to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out and met Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. So he turned aside um, to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And and he said to her, 
stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes to you and asks, is anyone here, say, no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out and met him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera, dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of of, um, Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against um, Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, until they destroyed him. So from the beginning of chapter 5. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Yale, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, Then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who rode on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me, against the mighty. From Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley, they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun 
is the people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali too on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of the Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly. Because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank there he fell dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest of princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found, found and divided the spoil? A whim or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. Amen. And let's pray together. Lord, this evening we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through it. And Lord, this evening as we study it, we ask that you would give us alert minds to hear what you would have to say to us and obedient hearts to what you would have us do. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our deliverer. Amen. Now, this evening, we carry on our studies in the book of Judges. And we've reached chapters four and five of Judges. And you may well have noticed there's a lot going on in these chapters. But if you were here last week, then perhaps as Andy started reading chapter four a few minutes ago for us, a few bells maybe started ringing in your mind. Maybe you recognize something of the pattern that Andy unpacked for us last Sunday evening. You might remember he even had a handy diagram to show us. No such luck this evening, I'm afraid. But if you would be so kind, if you'd jump back really quickly into chapter 3 for us, and to verse 7, and we'll just remind ourselves very quickly what this pattern is. Verse 7 of chapter 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. 
And as we read on, we see that that deliverer was a man called Othniel. So we saw that that pattern there from verse 7 in chapter 3. And when we read on through chapter 3, we got to verse 12, and the same pattern repeated itself again. The Israelites again rebelled against God. God again handed them over to their enemies. They again cry out to the Lord for help. And again, God sends a deliverer to save them, this time a man called Ehud. So that's the pattern we've seen emerging so far in the book of Judges. So when we start chapter 4 this evening, maybe you notice the same idea playing itself out. Chapter 4, verse 1. The people of Israel forget who God is, and they start living in a way that dishonors him. And when we read on into chapter 5, verse 8, we see what that looked like. They were choosing new gods for themselves. They had absolutely turned their backs on Yahweh. So, chapter 4, verse 2, God again punishes them. This time he sells them into the hands of a different enemy, a particularly prickly group of people called the Canaanites, and their king, a man called Jabin. So, chapter 4, verse 3, Jabin and his right-hand man and the ruler of his armies, a man called Sisera, oppress the people of Israel for 20 years. And so again, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord for help. And as we read on through chapter 4, we see the final outcome. Chapter 4, verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots by the sword. Chapter 4, verse 24, the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. So the pattern seems to continue from chapter 3 into chapters 4 and 5. It's fairly familiar territory so far. But I wonder if you notice that it's maybe not quite so clear cut as that. There are a number of differences between chapter 3 and chapters 4 and 5. There's the length for a start. Despite the fact that the story about Deborah and Barak is quite similar, the author spends two chapters on this delivery rather than the few verses on Othniel and Ehud. And then there's the mixture of characters involved in chapters 4 and 5. See, the stories of Othniel and Ehud, well, they're kind of frugal in their mentioning of other characters. They place a fairly heavy emphasis on the judge, on the deliverer, on Othniel and Ehud. But Barak, well, Barak's the judge. He's the deliverer in chapter 4, but he's not really the center of attention. We meet Deborah. This Israelite prophetess, this leader of Israel. We meet Jabin, the king of Canaan. We meet Jabin's right-hand man, a, a guy called Sisera. And then we meet the worst camping companion of all time, a woman called Yale. And then we get into, into chapter 5, and there's a whole section of chapter 5 spent unpacking the roles that all the different tribes of Israel play in this battle that Israel have with the Canaanites. So the judge doesn't seem to be the main focus of Judges chapters 4 and 5 at all. Despite being a fairly similar story on the face of it, this one's longer, it's more complicated than those in chapter 3. So why the shift? Why the shift in emphasis and the shift in style? Well, chapter 5 does give us a bit of a clue. The whole of chapter 5 is a song, and it's written by Barak and by Deborah. And in this song, they reflect on the roles that the main players in chapter 4 play in the delivery of God's people, in serving God's purposes to take God's people out of slavery. And right at the end of chapter 5, read this fairly revealing 
but slightly problematic verse that Andy read for us earlier on. Chapter 5, verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun when he rises in his might. Verse 31 groups this kaleidoscope of different characters we have in these two chapters into two categories. Friends of God, or in verse 31's words, enemies of God. Well, that's great, but weren't the characters in chapter 3 either for or against God? Yes, they were, but what's really interesting in the story of Barak and Deborah is quite how uncomfortably a lot of the characters fit into those two categories. See, in chapter 3, we had Othniel the golden boy. He's the ideal judge. We had Ehud. He was, as we looked at last week, he was his, his generation's answer to James Bond. He was a bit sneaky, but he was definitely on God's side. But one of the really big and tricky questions we're confronted with in chapters 4 and 5 of Judges is what happens... When a friend of God doesn't really act like a friend of God. See, there are several players in the story who, on the face of things, well, they ought to, they should be on God's side. But they really don't act like it. What do we do with the conditional obedience of this character, Barak, this reluctant warrior? He says he'll do God's will, yes, but... But only if Deborah comes with him to hold his hand. What do we make of that? And what do we make of the tribes of Israel we read of in chapter 5 who don't really bother themselves in God's battle at all? Is that how friends of God behave? See, these are the big characters, the big surprise packages in this section of Judges. And it's what we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this evening. But firstly, if you look onto your service sheets, you'll notice um, a few headings that we're going to uh, look at this evening. Our first heading on the service sheet is the emphatic defeat of the enemies of God. So there are some characters through chapters four and five of Judges that are fairly tricky for us to pop into different categories. But it probably doesn't take a genius for us to work out who the main enemies of God are in these characters, in these chapters, forgive me. In chapter 4, verse 2, we meet a man called Jabin. He is the king of Canaan. And we meet his right-hand man, who is the commander of Jabin's armies, a guy called Sisera. And as we read in verse 3, those, he, he commands armies that are fairly impressive. He has 900 iron chariots. And at the time, that was a really, really well-equipped army. That would be a truly terrifying prospect for any of the enemies of Canaan. And as we read on through chapter 4, in chapter 4, verse 13, we see that Sisera gathers his armies against Barak and his army, the army of Israel. And in verses 15 and 16, Sisera's state-of-the-art chariots are chased down and all of his men are killed in battle, down to the last man. But that's not quite the end for Sisera himself. In verse 17, he escapes. He hops out his chariot and he runs off and he tries to hide from the pursuing army. So he seeks shelter with an ally of the Canaanites, a friend, a man called Heber the Kenite. And Heber's wife is a woman called Jael. She's tasked with hiding Sisera. So she invites him in. She waits until he's asleep. She maybe helps things along by slipping some night nurse into his milk. And then she hammers a tent peg through his temple. She's probably not the best of hosts, you'd have to say. 
Now, the story of Sisera's death, of his assassination, is a wee bit morally problematic to us, if we're honest. And as we read on through chapter 5, things don't get much better. Verse 24 of chapter 5. Most blessed of women be Yale, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. Verse 26. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank. He fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. It seems that great delight is taken in the death of Sisera and Yale. This woman is praised as being most blessed of women, pretty much solely for her role as assassin of a sleeping visitor. What are we to make of this? Well, firstly, it's worth noting that we're not told much about Sisera as a man, but the little that we are told doesn't really warm us to him. In chapter 5 and verse 28, we're given a little insight into Sisera, the man. We meet Sisera's mother, who we find peering out of the window. She's waiting for Sisera to return home from battle with the Israelites. And his mother, nervous, worried as she is, takes comfort in verse 30 by the fact that, well, Sisera's probably just late in returning from battle because he's looting and he's raping the women of Israel. Verse 30 Are they not finding and dividing the spoils, a woman or two, for each man? We're not really meant to be endeared to Sisera, the man. But the defining characteristic of Sisera, and the reason that such honor is given to Yale, this woman, simply for killing him, isn't just that he's done some bad stuff in his time, and that he finally is given his comeuppance. The defining feature about This man, Sisera, is chapter 5, verse 31. He is an enemy of God. The battle that he and the Canaanites fight isn't just against Barak. It isn't just against the Israelites. Read uh, chapter 4, verse 15 again. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. The Lord routed him and his army before Barak by the sword. The battle that Sisera was fighting was first and foremost against God. He had placed himself in direct opposition to the God of the universe. And the reason for the author seeming to dwell on the incident involving the tent peg isn't just some sort of black sadistic humor. It's that the defeat of Sisera is emphatic and it is complete. Read it again. He sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell where he sank, there he fell dead. It is repeated, it is chimed upon and dwelt upon because as an opponent of God, it leaves us in no doubt that he is absolutely and completely defeated. He is an ex-Sisera. Now the oppression that the Israelites were under at the hands of the Canaanites was a result of their sin. God sold them into the hands of these enemies because of their rejection of him and their worshipping idols, choosing gods for themselves. And the Bible tells us that outside of Jesus, every one of us, all of us are slaves to sin. That's the phrase used in the New Testament. Slaves to sin. Rejecting God in favour of other gods, whatever those gods look like. And we're told that the consequence of that sin is eternal separation from God. So for us, these obvious candidates 
as enemies of God, Sisera and Jabin, these oppressors of the people of God, serve again to highlight the point that Andy made last week. We need a hero. We need someone to save us from slavery to sin, from a life which is bent against God, and from the ultimate consequences of that. Now, all of the judges we're going to look at throughout this series, all of the deliverers who are raised up to save God's people from oppression throughout this book, all of them point to the Lord Jesus. And ultimately, the war against sin, the war against its consequences for us, has been won. Just as Yale absolutely and emphatically put an end to the life of this oppressor, Sisera, the deliverer, Jesus, has done his job in absolute obedience to God the Father. And death and sin and darkness were emphatically defeated at the cross of Calvary. And I want to ask you this evening, what do you do with that? Maybe you've never really thought that sort of thing about Jesus before. You think about him as a prophet, a good example, how we ought to live. But what do you make of this idea that all of us have turned our backs on our creator, have rejected him, and that Jesus isn't just an example, but as a deliverer, a savior? Can I just say that how you respond to this Jesus, this deliverer, has life-changing and has eternity-shaping implications for every single one of us. And I'm afraid that this chapter leaves, and in fact this whole book of Judges, leaves no room for fence-setting. Either we embrace the salvation that Jesus freely offers us with glad and rejoicing hearts, or we place ourselves in direct opposition to him. And we embrace the consequences of that. The emphatic defeat of the enemies of God shows us that we need a hero. And the Bible tells us that God has given us the hero, the Lord Jesus. How do you respond to that this evening? So our first point of the text is maybe the clearest, it's maybe the most obvious one, and it's the vein that runs all the way through the book. It's the vein that will keep repeating as we study these different deliverers, these different judges. But as I mentioned earlier, things get a bit trickier, a bit more nuanced as we dig a little deeper into the text. So the second point on our service sheet for this evening, friends of God, an uncomfortable fit. Now, as I mentioned, there are a couple of slightly confusing characters in chapters 4 and 5, so we'll look at them in turn. Firstly, the reluctant obedience of the weak-kneed warrior. Now, we touched on chapter 3, where we read about Ehud and Othniel, both of whom are Errol Flynn-style swashbuckling heroes, who God raises up to save his people from their oppressors. But in chapter 4, things are a little bit different. Chapter 4, verse 3 again Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, that Sisera, had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. So God raised up a deliverer named Barak who saved them. But that's not quite what we read, is it? What do we get instead? The Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. And then we get Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. 
and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. So we don't get the judge. Instead, we meet Deborah. And Deborah fits fairly neatly into the category of friend of God. She is a prophetess. She speaks as a mouthpiece of God. And more than that, she's a judicial leader of Israel. She's a one-woman supreme court. People come to her to have their disputes decided. But as much as she is a prophetess, as much as she is really wise and she is used mightily by God, she's not the deliverer that we're waiting for. See, the word judged used throughout the book of Judges is not the same word as used to describe her Supreme Court judicial position. So just where will this deliverer come from? Well, we read on verse 6. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Keresh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor? So Deborah calls Barak to lead Israel's army into battle with the Canaanites to deliver the Israelites from this oppressor. What's Barak's response? Verse 8, if you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. It's rousing stuff, isn't it? (laughs) Deborah says to Barak, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded you. There's no two ways about it. And he says, well, if you come, I'll go. Now, we're left with this ridiculous situation where this warrior hero who's been called to go to battle to do what he does says he's not going to go unless this prophetess with little to no fighting experience to speak of, certainly none that we know of, comes along with him. So what do we do with Barak? Well, to give some credit to him, he does actually go. And what he was going to was a fairly terrifying battle with a really well-equipped army. I don't fancy it myself, if I'm honest with you. When all is said and done, he does do what God commanded him to do. Is Barak a friend of God? Yes, he is. And in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, he even appears listed among great heroes of the faith. But oddly enough, in his own chapter, he is only just by the skin of his teeth, the hero We see that from Deborah's response to him when he gives this half-hearted, if you go, I'll go response. Verse nine, she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road in which you are going will not lead to your glory for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, that woman being the tent peg wielding Yael. Yes, I'll go with you, says Deborah, but you're not gonna get the honor from this task that you've been called to go and do. And the inference is that the reason he's not going to get the honor from this is his reluctance to serve. Barak's reluctant commitment means that he doesn't enjoy the honor of finishing the job he's been called to do. But while Barak fits into the category of friend of God a wee bit uncomfortably in chapter 4, we meet another group in chapter 5 that raise even bigger issues for us. So point two, choosing beach holidays over battle, getting your priorities straight. Now a big chunk of chapter 5 spent reflecting, as I've mentioned, on the role that the different tribes of Israel play in the battle with the Canaanites. And there are a few tribes who come away from the battle with glowing reports who have thrown themselves into the battle and really behave like people who are committed to God's service. So verse 9, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Verse 18, Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali too on the heights of the field. 
Deborah and Barak take great joy in recounting the bravery of those who throw themselves into the fight. Those Israelite tribes who answer the call to arms willingly, who commit themselves to God's work to the point of risking their own lives. But you might have noticed they aren't the only ones who get a mention. Chapter 5 and the second half of verse 15. In the clans of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for flocks? In the clans of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan and Dan. Well, why did he stay by the ships? Asher sat at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. What's going on here? Well, it seems that the call to battle was put out to the tribes of Israel. Everyone, come and fight. And there were some who just didn't fancy it. They gave their excuses and they stayed at home. In Reuben, Rudid, there was much searching of heart, but there was no action. You suspect there were lots of committee meetings, lots of discussion about the pros and the cons, but after much inward reflection, they decided they weren't called to go to battle. One must pick one's battles, don't you know? So instead, they stayed at home to watch the sheep. Barak and Deborah, in the cold light of battle, in the cold light of day after this battle, ask Barak and Deborah, Reuben, where were you? You were at home. Dan lingered by the ships. More committed to preserving their ships either as possessions or to protecting their, their business interests and to serving a living God. And Asher, well, Asher remained by the coast and stayed in his coves or at his landings. So while the people of Zebulun and Naphtali are risking their lives in battle, throwing themselves into the service of God, instead of running to their help, the people of Asher, well, they're enjoying a bit of a beach holiday. It's a bit embarrassing and it's meant to be. Now, are they lovers of God? Well, the text doesn't say for sure either way, but chapter 5, verse 23 is fairly telling. Curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. We don't know exactly where Meroz is. It was probably a town somewhere near Galilee, but it seems fairly clear that if the people of Meroz are cursed for not involving themselves in the battle, then these reluctant Israelite tribes don't exactly cover themselves in glory. In status, the tribes form part of Israel, form part of God's people. But they don't really show it, do they? And in status, Barak is God's judge. Barak is God's deliverer. But he only shows it by the skin of his teeth. So what about us? How does this apply to us? Well, maybe we feel that we could quite happily assent to every creed, every orthodox statement of faith, we could give a hearty and loud, resounding amen, maybe inwardly, we're not that enthusiastic, to the most theologically sound of prayers. Outwardly, we identify ourselves as Christians. But what do our priorities reveal about us? For the Israelites and for Barak, evidencing that they were on God's side, that they were friends of God, meant taking up arms and doing so willingly. But you'll be glad to hear that for us, it's slightly different. I've left my hammer and tent peg at home this evening. So what does it look like for us to be committed to God's service? 
We've been studying what it looks like on Sunday mornings here at Chalmers. The Acts of the Apostles is the story of the good news of Jesus being told to the people of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, even to little Scotland. A tremendous, tremendous personal cost to those telling it. That's what it looks like for us to be invested in God's work in the here and now. Invested in telling the good news of Jesus to the city of Edinburgh, to the peoples of Scotland and around the world. Now, corporately, as churches, the past 12, the past 18 months and more have seen us and have seen our elders making really big decisions in the service of God and of his gospel, which in material and personal terms have cost and have cost a lot. It's not a case of patting ourselves on the back for that, but it's true. There have been great personal difficulties faced by a lot of us making decisions for God and his gospel. And other churches around our country, around our city, face similar decisions, some in every bit as difficult or even more difficult in pressing circumstances than ourselves. And we pray for them and we practically support them where we can in the days and months to come. But it would be foolish for us, it would be naive for us to think that this is the last time that we as churches, will find ourselves under the cosh for choosing to serve Jesus. So, each step of the way, we remain faithful, we remain committed to telling the good news, however costly that may be. And personally, what does this look like for each one of us in the day-to-day nitty-gritty of life tomorrow morning? Well, I'll confess this is where the rubber has really hit the road for me this week as I've been preparing for this evening. How is it that I can possibly know the depths that Jesus has saved me from and the wonders that he has saved me to? And instead of sharing it with other people, content myself with preserving self and wealth. If we are lovers of God, if we have been gripped by his grace in delivering us from the oppression and the consequences of sin, it must have the most profound impact on our priorities in the day-to-day of life. So in the conversations we have among friends and colleagues, are we more concerned with self-preservation than with their salvation? Maybe we shy away from the tricky conversation about Jesus. Maybe we shy away from even mentioning the fact I was at church on Sunday because, well, it'd probably torch my reputation in the staff room. It might even damage my future career progression or business interests. Or the way we spend our money. What's more important? Prospects of beach holidays like the people of Dan. Or open-handedly giving money to the work of the gospel training gospel workers in Scotland, equipping churches across our city and country to tell people about Jesus. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying don't go on holiday. And I'm not saying that every conversation you have in the staff room has to finish with an altar call. It's easy to turn this stuff into a sort of religious checklist. And that is not my intention. I'm just asking if you're a friend of God, if you've been gripped by his grace and saved then how does your life demonstrate that as a priority? The Israelites had every reason to serve God. They'd been saved out of Egypt. They'd been brought into the promised land. And yet they refused to serve him 
to preserve their own interests. Even Barak, directly called, commanded to do God's will, issues a conditional response and fails to enjoy the fullness of having acted willingly, wholeheartedly, joyfully in the service of God. It's stark and challenging stuff for each one of us. Judges 4 and 5 is a call to arms for those of us who have been saved by God. And for us, that is a call to go and tell. Go and tell the good news of Jesus to Edinburgh and to Scotland. As Christians, we march under the banner of the God of the universe who has won, who has saved us. And so the question I'll leave you with this evening is will you commit yourself to the service of your saviour, your deliverer, the Lord Jesus? Let's pray together. Lord God, we find ourselves challenged by these uncomfortable characters who don't seem to fit very neatly into the category of friends of God. And Lord, as we reflect on ourselves, we know that we do fall so very short. And yet we know that by your son's blood shed for us on the cross at Calvary, we are brought into that category as friends of God. And we ask for your power, for your Holy Spirit to enable us to live like it in the day-to-day of life. Equip us to tell people about your son, Jesus, and to be committed as a priority to serving you, our God and our King. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.